I just want to add my uh, celebration to you who are moms. Uh, it is, uh, you all have, um, you are such an important gift to your kids and such an incredible gift to your kids. And there are so many ways in which you as moms embody aspects of the tenderness and the gentleness and the, and the, the, um, the constancy of the love of God for your kids and something of the intimacy of God as well. Thank you for your faithfully loving the next generation. I think if I were pressed to come up with a list of uh, the top 10 books that every Christian should read, one of the books on, that I think would make it onto that list is J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. This is how J.I. Packer begins his book, Knowing God, with a series of a handful of questions. I'd be curious how you would answer these. What are we made for? What aim should we set for ourselves in life? And what is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Here's how he answers those questions. What are we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God more. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? The knowledge of God. And then he quotes God's word through his prophet Jeremiah. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. We are right at the beginning of a new sermon series on intimacy with God. And in this series, we are looking at what may seem like an unlikely passage to explore intimacy with God, which is the story of Moses and the people of God's encounter with God at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. With all of the, the quaking of mountains and the quaking of God's people, with God seeming so forbidding and, and the people seeming so unwelcome at first glance, this may seem like a strange place to go to explore how we might grow in deeper intimacy with God. But I think uh, that the, the off-putting dimension of this passage is present only if we, if we take a quick glance at it. As soon as we begin to take a, a closer look at what is going on in this event, I think that we discover that this is an event orchestrated by God and intended by God for the very purpose of deepening his relationship with his people. We saw last Sunday God going out of his way to bring his people to himself. He has taken great pains to draw them near, and then he has extended to them an invitation that they would draw near to him. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 4, you remember from last Sunday, Listen to these stunning words that express the heart of God towards his people. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Intimacy with God begins with God. It begins with his initiative and his invitation. God always takes the first step, and the Christian life is our responding to that initiative of God. 
Now, as we move on into the story, we see not only that God took the initiative to invite them to come into his presence, but God takes the initiative to reveal himself to his people so that they can know him and know him at a deeper level. You think about it, intimacy is always connected with how deeply we know someone. So intimacy with God is directly connected to our knowing of him, not just knowing things about him, not just being able to say these are things that are true about God. He is blank. But knowing him, uh, knowing that's based on a relational experience with God, being able to say, God, you are blank. As Packer says in Knowing God, a little knowledge of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. I am greatly enjoying the opportunity right now to do some premarital counseling with a couple of different couples. And part of the time that we spend together, actually a significant part of the time, is me asking questions and then allowing uh, the couples to respond. Now, now, part of this, obviously, is an opportunity for me to get to know the couples better so that I can know how best to speak into their lives and invest them in, in them in that way. But the primary reason that I ask them lots of questions is in order that they might get to know each other. I ask them questions that give them opportunity to explain something of who they are and what makes their hearts beat, what kinds of experiences have shaped them and turned them into who they are all for the purpose of their deepening in their relationship with one another. That they might develop a closer and closer connection to each other. That they might deepen in intimacy. Intimacy, growing closer, depends on our coming to know each other at ever deeper levels. Well, as we saw last Sunday, God has already taken the initiative to draw his people near. He leads them to the place in the desert that represents symbolically his home, the the place where he resides. And then he has drawn them to himself and extended an invitation for them to draw near to him. And now we see how God continues to take the initiative by making himself known to them, revealing his nature and his character and his heart to them. Now think about this. What would we know about God if God himself did not reveal it? Nothing, really. Because God stands outside of creation. He isn't one of the things we bump into in creation. He is the one who created everything and holds it all together. And and we are given the gift of experiencing God as he pervades the created order with his presence but God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, so we, we can't go to some place and time to sit down and talk with him. So the Israelites actually, think about this. They could have walked on their journey from Egypt to the promised land, they could have walked right past God's front door and had no sense whatsoever that he was even present, let alone the sort of God he was which helps us realize that everything that happens at Mount Sinai was calculated, was for a purpose. It was to open up God for his people so that they could know him better. So God takes the initiative to make himself known. 
He gives his people glimpses of his nature, glimpses of his character, glimpses of his heart. And he does this in, in un, he unfolds three different dimensions of, his, of, his, of who he is. His holiness, his transcendence, and his love. So first of all, God reveals his holiness. While it doesn't always show up this way in our English translations, it's interesting to notice that the Hebrew word holy shows up five different times in chapter 19. It makes it really clear that a very significant focus of Exodus 19 is the holiness of God. Holiness is how God is above us and apart from us in his character. It is a way that he is marked by a purity and a perfection that is foreign to us and separates him from us. It's about how he is marked by a might and a majesty for which we have no scale and no point of perspective. He is like nothing that we possess in ourselves and nothing that we encounter in one another. So, a significant part of what unfolds in this encounter with God and, his God and God's people at Mount Sinai is God seeks to provide for them some points of reference that can help them understand who he is and what he's like and the ways that he is different from us. So, you can almost think about how God's thoughts unfolded here. What do humans associate with power and mystery and otherness and might and purity? What are some of the things that overwhelm human beings and foster in them a response of awe and respect and reverence and humility? So God gathers together some of those most overwhelming experiences that a human being might have had in the ancient world, blowing smoke and thunderclouds and blazing fire and lightning striking and the earth quaking and, and trumpets blaring. And as he draws his people to himself, he uses these like physical metaphors. They're like physical analogies that give an earthly point of reference to unearthly dimensions of his character. My holiness, he is saying, is like this. From the day the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, to the point where they showed up in God's front yard, God has been leading them with a pillar of cloud and fire. And now, as he brings them to his mountain, this display of God's glory in cloud and fire amplifies and it grows. And it's not just something that they see, but now it becomes something that they hear and something that they feel and something that they experience. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and the... A, very loud trumpet blast. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. And the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So God gives this demonstration of his holiness as a gift to his people not to put them off, not to chase them away, but to draw them near, to bring them into a deeper understanding of what's true about himself. And look at how he does this. First, he draws a line that separates him from his people. He puts boundaries around the mountain. He tells the people not to approach on pain of death. He says there is a line that runs through all of existence, a line that separates what is holy from what is not. On one side of that line is God. On the other side of that line is all that falls short of the glory of God. 
which is every one of us as human beings, including God's people. But then, having established his holiness, his perfection, his purity through these physical metaphors, having drawn the line that separates him from his people, the very next thing he does is to invite them to cross that line and to approach him. We can miss this incredibly important uh, verse in the middle of this unfolding story. Chapter 19, verse 13, it says, And when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may approach the mountain. More in a couple weeks about the covenant sacrifice that makes that line crossing possible. Well, now in the next chapter, in chapter 20 in Exodus, God explains why he has revealed his holiness to his people in this way. Beginning in verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and they heard the trumpet and they saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. <coughs> they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, you can speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we're going to die. And Moses says to his people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now, look at that last line again. We, we see that the people of God are shrinking back from God. They are trembling in fear, but that's not what God is trying to accomplish in this encounter. He isn't trying to cause his people to be afraid of him. In fact, Moses specifically says, don't be afraid. And then he explains why God has allowed them to see this display of his holiness. It says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Well, that sure seems contradictory, doesn't it? Don't be afraid, but God is testing you to put the fear of God in you. When we think of the word test, most of us think of the thing like the exams that you Purdue students have just uh, endured in this past week. It's something that your teacher puts in front of you to expose you. Yeah, to find out what you have, but more to find out what you don't have, to find out what's missing. But when this word is used in Scripture to describe God's dealings with his people, and it's used fairly often, it always has a completely different tone from that. God's tests are always invitational, not oppositional. They are meant to be gifts to the people of God. A test describes something that God allows his people to experience in order to strengthen what is already there and even to form something in them that isn't yet fully formed in them. So a gift to form fear in God's people, how is that a gift? Well, like many Hebrew words, fear is a word with a, re a really wide range of potential meanings. From negative to positive. It means everything from terror that makes you want to run away to awe that makes you want to draw near. And clearly, the second is what God has in mind in this context. So combining a couple of different versions, I think a faithful way to interpret this verse is something like this. God has come in this way to allow you, uh, to show you his awesome power and to instill a deep and reverent awe within you so that you won't sin. And then to just add even a little bit more nuance and invitation to this. 
I just had a really rich conversation with my physical therapist this week about sin. Uh, you can imagine the way the conversation came about, but that isn't how it came about. Actually, I just kind of, throw in a conversation about something completely separate, I had thrown out a comment about the seven deadly sins. And after a while, she circled back around and said, so I've always been curious, where did, where did those seven deadly sins come from? So I kind of backed way up from that. I thought this really is a significant opportunity now to talk about how we think about God and sin and what does it mean for God to be holy. And so we, we uh, had a really, really rich conversation. So one of the things that I mentioned to her is that in Hebrew, the word that is most often translated law in the Old Testament, the word Torah, originally refers to a way or a path, not to a bunch of restrictions or, or regulations. It is a path that God has laid out in front of his people as the best way for them to live. God creates, creates us, he knows what's best for us, and this is a path that is meant to lead to life because it's a path that is meant to lead us closer and closer to God. It's the original intent of the law. And this word for sin is a word that in its root means veering off the path. It's what happens when we try to find our rest or our satisfaction or our fulfillment in something other than God himself. So adding that nuance into this passage, we start hearing this verse in a a much more personal and much more inviting way. God is wanting to show you his holiness, his purity, and his perfection so that out of a deep sense of reverence for God, you will continue to seek to follow the path that he has laid out for you, a path that is meant to lead you ever closer to him. So first, as a gift to his people, as a way of making himself known to them so that they can grow closer to him, God gives his people a glimpse of his holiness. And then secondly, God reveals something of his transcendence to his people. We get just a glimpse of this in one verse in chapter 24, verse 10. It says, there they saw the God of Israel and under his feet, there seemed to be a surface of brilliant blue lapis lazuli as clear as the sky itself. Well, the the transcendence of God is a fancy theological term that just describes his otherness, his over and aboveness. It gets at the way that God in his nature as creator is above and outside of the limits of material reality. So when God displays his holiness, he provides his people with metaphors to help them understand it. Clouds, fire, trumpets, earthquakes. But when God displays his transcendence, His people are left groping for their own metaphors to find some earthly equivalent to try to describe what they've seen and experienced of God. So Moses and the elders are given a glimpse of God on his heavenly throne, and they are left struggling to kind of to come up with something within the realm of human experience to describe the mysteries and the wonders that they just have seen. Lapis lazuli is a stunning, swirling, deep blue stone with an intense kind of celestial color. And that was the best that they could come up with to describe the mystery of what they saw beneath God's feet and and surrounding God. So you, you see this dynamic all the time in the scriptures, in places like Ezekiel and Daniel and the book of Revelation, where the writers trying to describe 
something that God has allowed them to see of him, they are at a loss to, to try to narrate what they've seen. And they're, they're grabbing for things like gems, like sapphires and diamonds or precious metals like gold and silver to, to say it was, it was like this. I mean, one of many examples, a vision of the Son of God in Daniel chapter 10. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a, a belt like that of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist and his body was like topaz and his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, his voice like the sound of a multitude. He uses the word like so often, he sounds like he's from California. So once again, draw, God draws a line through existence. And this time, it is the creator-creature line. On one side is the transcendent God, independent, all-powerful, with life and existence in himself. On the other side is everything that God has made, everything that is not God, including God's people, limited, finite, dependent upon God for their existence moment by moment. A.W. Tozer, in another wonderful book that I would commend, The Knowledge of the Holy, traces this dividing line of transcendence right through the middle of existence. This is what he writes. We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angel to God. That would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence, but that's not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of the word. He is as high above an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nonetheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God and are separated by, or from God by infinitude itself. So on Mount Sinai, God draws another line through existence. But then, as we see in the very next verse, which we'll have a chance to look at in a couple of weeks, having drawn the line between himself and his people, between creator and created, he invites them to step across that line toward him, to share in a covenant meal, to share in a covenant relationship with him. So, as a gift to his people, as a way of making himself known to them so that they can grow closer and closer to him, God gives his people a glimpse of his holiness and his transcendence. And then finally, God gives them a glimpse of his love for them. God is not only above and apart from his people in his transcendent nature and in his holy character, he is above and apart from them in the way in which he relates to them and loves them. Think about this. In our dealings with each other, we reflexively condition our response on what we receive from the other person. It's just what we do. We love those who love us. We pull back from those who disappoint us. And we break relationship with those who fail us. It's one of the deepest human reflexes. But God's love for his people is rooted in his own commitment to himself and to us. Not on our performance, not on us getting it right. So hopping forward a few chapters to Exodus 33 and picking up the story again, we find Moses talking to God after a devastating act of betrayal on the part of God's people. 
which you can read about in Exodus 32. God has barely finished bringing his people to his mountain when they brazenly reject him and make an idol that they choose to worship instead, right in his own front yard. It's like God's people having an affair on their honeymoon. Moses pleads with God for his forgiveness, asks for God not to reject them and to remain with them, to to promise that he will go with them into the promised land, and God makes that promise. And then Exodus chapter 33, picking up in verse 18. And then Moses says, now show me your glory. And God answers, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. So Moses went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This picture of the heart of God for his people is absolutely and utterly unlike the manner in which we love one another. He is patient in the face of failure. He is understanding in the midst of struggle. He is generous in the face of need. He is forgiving in the face of wrong. In all of these ways, God demonstrates that there is a line and that his way of relating with us as his people is utterly unlike the way we relate to one another. But then he says this, verse 7, and this Uh, probably throws us back a little bit. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. (coughs) That last line could sound like God just suddenly has backtracked on everything he said about his love for his people. But this is actually like a QR code that God inserts in his conversation with Moses. Honey, could you hear my water, please? Thank you. (coughs) Excuse me. So Moses clicks on this, and it takes him back to the Ten Commandments, which were hot off the press uh, just a few weeks before, and he takes him to the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses uh, 4 to 6, which this essentially is a quote from. This is what it says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for, now here he's explaining the reason, and this is what he wants Moses to recall. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It is that expression of his jealousy that I believe that God wants to bring Moses back to in the middle of this expression of his amazing boundless love for his people. So what does it mean for God to be a jealous God? I mean, that sounds like the opposite of a God who is patient and and loving and forgiving. But it isn't at all. It's actually an expression of that heart of God. When we speak of jealousy, there's always a negative dimension to it. But when it is used to describe God in Scripture, jealousy is always something beautiful. It expresses the passionate and enduring covenant commitment that God has to his people. Packer, in Knowing God, says this is a praiseworthy zeal to 
to preserve a love relationship that is supremely precious. God says, I am deeply devoted to you, and I want you to be deeply devoted to me. I have pledged my allegiance to you, now pledge yours to me. So once again at Mount Sinai, we see God drawing a line that separates him from his people. This time, a line dividing perfect love from imperfect love. And then he invites his people to step across that line and into the embrace of his love as his gift to his people. As a way of making himself known to them so that they can grow in knowing him more, God gives his people a glimpse of his holiness, of his transcendence, and of his love. This meeting between God and his people at Mount Sinai is an amazing moment of self-revelation in order that God's people might know God better. At his initiative, God gathers his people to himself and then he draws back the veil and he gives us a glimpse of himself that we might know his heart, his nature, his character, not to put us off, but to draw us near and to bring us deeper and deeper in intimacy with him. I've asked Lisa and Daniel if they would uh, help me try to capture this display of God's holiness, his transcendence, and his love at Mount Sinai, and to give us a sense of what it might have felt like to have been there as his traces and glimpses of the nature and character and heart of God are held out before God's people.
incredible glimpses, tastes of the nature and character of God, but glimpses and tastes aren't enough. And as many of you know, there is one more chapter to the story. The book of Revelation, or the, the, what happened at Mount Sinai was not the end of God's revelation of himself but was only the beginning, and across the ages, God has gone to great lengths to make himself known. And the culminating chapter of God's work of revelation took place in a dirty sheep stable in a little town called Bethlehem, when, as John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Now God walks in our midst, not as a pillar of cloud and fire, but as a human being, fully God and fully human. And we see him not from behind, but face to face. The bright holiness and the otherworldly transcendence of God remain veiled, but this time not behind the obscure form of a cloud, but behind a humble human face. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself taking upon himself the form of a servant. There are fleeting glimpses of his holiness and transcendence, moments when the Shekinah glory flashes forth, such as the time when Jesus took Peter and John and James with him and went up onto the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. But what we see most in Jesus are naked, costly, breathtaking, life-giving expressions of God's covenant love as he crisscrossed the land in his life and as he hung from the cross in his death. God has come to make himself known. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What are we made for? To know God. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God more. So we say with Paul, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And what is the best thing in life? bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else, the knowledge of God. Therefore, let us grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are moved and we are humbled and we are overwhelmed that your love for us would be such that you would go to these lengths to make yourself known to us. Our answering desire, Lord, is that you would take us into deeper and deeper places of knowing you and knowing you as you came to make yourself known in the person of Jesus. 
before whom we open our lives, to whom we bring our every need, upon whom we place the weight of our lives themselves. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.